quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Julia Chesley in New York. This morning, America waking up at a potential crossroad following the Derek Chauvin murder trial. The nation waiting to see if Chauvin's conviction for the murder of George Floyd will translate into a new era of accountability, if not justice, for those that have lost their lives unlawfully. Now, while there have been spontaneous marches and celebrations in response, now comes the eight-week wait for sentencing and an ongoing fight to tackle racial injustice and inequality more broadly. As CNN's Adrian Brodus reports. After more than 10 hours of deliberation. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts. The jury deciding the fate of the former Minneapolis police officer who held his knee on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes last May. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Derek Chauvin, guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. The judge revoking Chauvin's bail before he was handcuffed and taken into custody. This is a victory for those who champion humanity over inhumanity, those who champion justice over injustice. Marking the end of three weeks of testimony in a trial centered around a bystander video showing the final moments of Floyd's life. I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability, which is the first step towards justice. Outside the Cup Food store, now known as George Floyd Square, <laughs> silence erupting into cheers of cautious celebration and sorrow. Mixed emotions shared by Floyd's family here in Minneapolis and watching on screen more than a thousand miles away in Texas, nearly one year after his murder. I'm going to put up a fight every day because I'm not just fighting for George anymore. I'm fighting for everybody around this world. Today, we are able to breathe again. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris speaking with them on the phone Tuesday. We're all so Biden and Harris later addressing the nation with the president warning that while the verdict may be a moment of, quote, significant change, it's not enough. We can't stop here. In order to deliver real change and reform, we can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again. On New Day, George Floyd's brother spoke of relief when the verdict was announced. The moment I heard guilty, 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 I was excited. It felt like I had just won a championship. It felt like the world had won a championship because of 
African-Americans, we feel like we never get justice. It's not about black, it's not about white, it's not about Asian, and it's only one race, and that's the human race. And the world, let it be known that we all can breathe again because justice for George means freedom for all. It's certainly a call for change from the community to the boardroom. Leaders want action following the Derek Chauvin verdict. Christine Romans joins us for more on that. Christine, great to have you with us. Certainly from the Hi. business community, they were ready the instant yeah. that verdict came through to respond. Yeah, moments after the verdict, you were starting to hear from all kinds of companies who had crafted statements and CEOs and leaders who wanted to make sure they were striking uh, the right tone from the business roundtable. This is the powerful group of, of corporate executives that uh, together they employ some 15 million people. The business roundtable uh, saying that the verdict was in and that we still had more work to do for racial equality in this country to ensure true justice and healing. Our country needs to take steps to address its long history of racial inequity in law enforcement. Lots of different companies from CEOs Mary Barra uh, to Wells Fargo, up and down the line, very quick with their reactions to the Chauvin uh, verdict. And from AT&T's Tim Cook, or I'm sorry, I'm looking at AT&T on the bottom right under your screen. From Apple's uh, Tim Cook, you had him uh, quoting Martin Luther King Jr. Today's verdict was just but as Dr. King wrote, justice for black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions nor from fountains of political oratory. Justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. Which brings me to what next? Uh, as Cuba Gooding Jr. said in that great movie, Show Me the Money, companies are standing up for democracy. They're standing up for fa fairness. But show me the money. What are companies doing today and into the future to make sure that these inequities that are woven through all parts of American society society and the American economy are addressed. Yeah, show me the money and show me the action, quite frankly, because words are cheap at this moment. Christine, you and I, we've been talking about this for a long time and you can look at the data and it's just not happening quickly enough. And there is a delicate balancing act to be found. If you do too much here, you get criticised by the right yeah. of uh, politics. If you do too little, you get criticised by the left. Concrete action, Christine, what can they do and what can they do today? It's more. so interesting. On the, on the voting rights issue, we showed you all those hundreds of companies that put that two-page ad in the Washington Post and the, and the New York Times. They were criticized by some on the right for sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong, right? And they were accused by some on the left for not doing enough, like pulling more of their uh, political donations for, for, for states and for cities and for politicians that don't, um, that don't support voting rights and don't do more for fundamental fairness in American democracy. So they get it on both sides. They get it also from politicians who say, oh, you criticize the American system, but you say nothing about China and you do business there. So there, there is a, a tightrope to walk here. I would say in the very near term, I know that corporate leaders are thinking about this every single day. Their employees and their customers are demanding it. But there are things they can do. Comb your own numbers for pay inequity. Find out what your hiring practices. Why is it that so few of your leaders are, are black Americans? Figure it out how to make your leadership ranks a more diverse to represent your customers and your employees. These are things I know they're trying to do. Uh, you know, police reform is part of it. Education reform is part of it. But companies pay the paychecks, right? If there is income inequality in this country among races, the paychecks come from the companies. There are things they can do on their end. Figure it out faster. I think that's the <laughs> message. Christine Romans, thank you for that. And CNN will continue to cover the reaction to the Chauvin trial verdict throughout the day.
For now, though, it's another day of caution and consolidation on Wall Street as investors pair back on reopening plays and the major tech names that outperformed during lockdowns. A great example of that, Netflix, down some 8% pre-market after first quarter subscription growth disappointed. Just 4 million new subscribers were added compared to 16 million subscribers added this time last year amid the lockdowns. It was the future growth, I think, being brought forward. More details on those numbers later on in the show. For now, lockdown fears, the big driver in the Asia session to the Nikkei falling some 2% as Japan battles the latest COVID outbreak. A stark contrast, it seems, with what we've got going on in Europe, where we're seeing greater clarity as reopenings as the vaccine supply picture and rollout take shape. And we cannot discuss Europe without mentioning the European super non-league, however. Is anyone left standing? I'm telling you what, investors, they're not hanging around. Shares of Premier League giant Manchester United falling 6% in US trading yesterday under a bit of pressure again pre-market. Italian giant Juve Juventus also being punished, down more than 13% in Milan. As we speak, that's actually below Friday's close. So they certainly are being punished for what's happened in the last couple of days. Super League, super shambles. The European Super League collapsing. Football clubs can't walk away fast enough. The owners of Liverpool apologising to the fans. Goes without saying, but should be said, that the project put forward was never going to stand without the support of the fans. No one ever thought differently in England. Over these 48 hours, you were very clear that it would not stand. We heard you. I heard you. Yes, walking alone on that decision. Alex Thomas is live in London with the latest. Alex, I think that's as close as it gets to a billionaire uh, begging for forgiveness, quite frankly. What on earth happened in the last 48 hours and is it all over? It was a slow, gradual build-up of pressure from every corner of the planet, really, Julia. We had the announcement late on Sunday night that the Super League had billions of dollars of financial backing was definitely going ahead. They never officially used the word European, by the way, even though it only involved European clubs. Such was the scope of their ambition to spread this further should it get off the ground. But it never did. You had not just football authorities protesting against it. You even had the British Prime Minister, France's president, a member of the royal family. And then crucially on Tuesday, as things continued to gather pace in terms of the criticism, while no one was speaking for the project, you had actual players and managers from the clubs involved with the breakaway project speaking out against it as well. And then on Tuesday night, ahead of a Premier League game between Chelsea and Brighton, in the stadium behind me, and just a few hundred yards up the road at the other entrance to it, we had a massive sit-down protest by Chelsea fans. Remember, none of them allowed in to sit down because of COVID restrictions, which have been eased in England more than on the continent, so they were allowed to gather and they stopped the team coaches at one stage from actually driving in or carrying the players for the game. I think all this led to the owners of the English clubs particularly realising they'd made a horrible mistake. They are massive losers in this. The financial pressures that led to the project are still there. But the idea of it coming back to the table any time in the next few years is dead and buried. Uh, And I've never seen that video, that that sound from John Henry, the owner of the Fenway Sports Group, that also owned the Boston Red Sox, is astonishing. They badly misjudged the mood of the Liverpool fans over season ticket prices a few years back. They made the same mistake again, although it was a humble and sincere apology. I know from having been up in Liverpool, Liverpudlians do not forgive and forget easily. And I think they're going to be facing a lot of pressure uh, to stay at the club at all now. Yeah, beware the egg throwing, quite frankly. It's uh, personal for me and my family, I can tell you. Um, 
Is there going to be a break fee, do you think, for walking away from this deal? I mean, we don't know what the contours of this deal look like. It looked rushed as bad business decisions go. It's right up there. But Alex, what about some kind of break fee? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Italian and Spanish clubs... Um, and by the way, not everyone's pulled out yet, but we know that after all the English clubs overnight, we've had both the Milan clubs and Atletico Madrid say they're also going to you know, pull, pull out of the project as well. I think the Italian and Spanish clubs will be worse off for the collapse of this because they financially needed the money more than the English clubs who at least have the lucrative Premier League uh, to fall back on. Um, we do know that UEFA is going to revamp the Champions League. After the English club said they were pulling out, there were slightly more conciliatory words from the UEFA president who'd felt completely betrayed and referred to uh, snakes and liars previously. And they know it's their job to make money for the top clubs because they can afford to pay the salaries of the biggest stars. And that's what brings new people into the game and keeps making it the most popular sport on the planet. You know, the kids across the world that start kicking a ball around their local streets all do it because they're inspired by the stars on the field at the highest level. So the game needs to stay joined up from top to bottom. And hopefully this has stopped people trying to break away for now and do it their own way. Yeah, football is for the fans, ultimately. And the ethos of football is the community. Alex, great to have you with us. Thank you. Alex Thomas there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Russian authorities have reportedly detained dozens of people taking part in protests in support of Alexei Navalny. At least two close allies of the Kremlin critic were detained before the protests even began, according to their lawyers. Demonstrations are happening on the day Vladimir Putin delivered his State of the Nation address. Let's go live to Moscow now with CNN Sam Kiley. Sam, I'm reading and I'm trying to look at the pictures as well. What have we seen in terms of protests despite those detainments? Well, very muted uh, so far, uh, Julia. They're not officially supposed to get underway until about half past seven Moscow time. That's in about three and a half hours. So there is time for it to build. And of course, it's obviously timed to start after the workday. This, after all, being the middle of the week, not a weekend, which might have been expected to attract uh, more demonstrations. But on top of that, the Russian authorities right across this enormous country of uh, a large number of different time zones, seven hours ahead of us, uh, right out in the east. There were some detentions as some demonstrations were attempted to get off the ground and some key members of Mr. Navalny's entourage, his inner circle, also been preemptively detained. There are some people gathering here and there, but uh, the authorities have made it abundantly clear, uh, partly using the issue of COVID and the need to socially isolate as part of the argument to ban these uh, demonstrations, although it's quite interesting to note that very few of those people listening to a tightly packed hall full of people to the speech given by Vladimir Putin were even wearing masks, let alone uh, socially distanced. So there's a obvious hypocrisy there. But the issue really has been whether or not to have this demonstration from the opposition's perspective when they reached the 500,000 signatures that they'd hoped to get online or whether to bring it forward because of the failing health of Mr. Navalny. Now, uh, according to the local authorities in the area where he's being kept about two hours outside of Moscow in a penal colony, he has been visited by what is being described as four independent doctors, but they're not the doctors he's been uh, asking for, not his private doctors, uh, during what is now the third week of his hunger strike. But both his lawyers yesterday 
and these doctors today, and we have no independent verification that they even saw him, let alone what their conclusions are. But the conclusions they're saying do dovetail with the reports coming from his lawyers that he is now on some kind of glucose or nutrition drip uh, to try to uh, maintain his health. And he issued a statement through Instagram yesterday joking that he looked like the sort of creature that might frighten children into eating uh, their food properly since he looks skeletal with enormous ears. But he has been able to walk around his cell. So perhaps claims that his death was imminent coming from opposition members of his own entourage may have been exaggerated. But this is all very much in the realms of tweet and counter tweet uh, between the opposition uh, and statements and the government. Julia? Yeah, important we keep talking about it though. Sam Kiley, live in Moscow. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so to come here on First Move, dose delay. Greta Thunberg joins the fight for fair vaccine distribution as shortages hamper COVAX rollout. And Sun Sea and shots, vaccine shots, that is. The Maldives lures tourists with a novel proposition. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A record number of new COVID-19 infections were reported worldwide last week, so says the World Health Organization, which puts the tally at 5.2 million people. Driving the surge are major outbreaks in Brazil and India. Brazil now has more than 14 million active cases. India, meanwhile, accounts for 28% of new cases worldwide. The country reported the highest ever number of new infections and deaths on Wednesday. Hospitals there are turning away patients as they run out of beds, oxygen and COVID tests. Now, as India grapples with the surge, the world's biggest vaccine maker, the Serum Institute of India, has slowed the export of vaccines. Among doses delayed are the March and April deliveries for the COVAX program, which allocates vaccines to lower income economies. And joining us now is Dr. Seth Berkeley. He's chief executive officer of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance and co-head of the COVAX program. Dr. Berkeley, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's just talk about what you have achieved so far. I believe around 40 million doses of vaccines have been delivered, which is fantastic progress. But when you compare it to the 2 billion you were hoping to do this year, there's a long way to go. Well, it's nice to see you again, Julia. And and you're absolutely right. We've delivered now to 118 countries around 41 million doses. We always knew we would be starting slowly because there weren't that many vaccines approved early on and we had to prepare countries for them. We always expected the big push would be in the second half of the year. But of course, the delay you talked about at the Serum Institute of India, where we're now 90 million doses down in March and April, of course, has slowed us down even further. So we still hope to get to 2 billion doses by the end of 2021. And we will be announcing um, new deals in addition to the ones we've already announced to have a fully um, diversified portfolio of vaccines. How are you going to get around this and, and ensure that you manage the 2 billion this year? I mean, to your point, and we've mentioned the Serum Institute of India prioritizing domestic needs. They were also saying that they were having supply chain issues with the United States prioritizing their domestic vaccine manufacturing too. There's a whole chain of complications here. Well, well, let's be absolutely honest about this. The world uses normally about three and a half billion doses of vaccine a year. If you add flu, maybe it's five billion. Of course, people would like this year to be able to vaccinate the whole world against mm -hmm. COVID. 
that would be talking about, um, you know, another tripling or quadrupling of the vaccines that will be made. Now, manufacturers are working very hard to scale up, but we are seeing supply constraints, shortages of products. We are seeing some hoarding by companies. We are seeing export uh, bans and controls, and this is making it very hard to move forward on this massive scale up that the whole world needs. It's one of, again, the reasons why it's important to have multiple different vaccines. You never know what side effects may occur or when you may have manufacturing problems or supply chain problems for the products. I can't help but compare the 41 million, I stand corrected, versus what more than 210 million doses that already have been administered in the United States. We talk about this a lot, whether it's vaccine nationalism or people focusing on their own domestic uh, priorities. The gap between delivery in richer nations and poorer nations is widening. Well, you know, we certainly have seen this in the past. In the last outbreak, or, or, or pandemic in 2009, the swine flu pandemic. We saw a number of countries buy up all the doses. It's one of the reasons we moved quickly to set up COVAX to try to get a global mechanism going forward. But of course, we do understand political leaders need to serve their own populations. But what we ask is that they serve their high risk populations. And then as soon as that is done, they try to get other high risk populations served. Because in a case with the new variants, um, we're only saying if we're all safe. So what we need to make sure of is that we are controlling the pandemic everywhere. We're also asking countries to share doses. So when they have vaccines that they're not using yet or um, may have excess volumes, that they share those with other countries as well. And Dr. Berkeley, is that happening or do countries need to do more? So we've seen um, the first um, um, uh, announcements of dose sharing. We had our investment opportunity hosted by the U.S. government last Thursday. Secretary of State Blinken hosted it. We had there the first announcements from um, uh, New Zealand uh, donating doses. We also heard from France, um, uh, Norwegian, Norway, other countries now beginning to talk about making doses available. And this will help in these countries. Of course, there are principles of those donations to try to make sure they're used equitably and that they still have a long enough shelf life. But again, we're all in this together. I think this pandemic has showed that to be the case. And that's why we have to work together. Some big nations missing from that list. Uh, I will note that for uh, you and myself and the viewers. Um, let's talk about safety concerns, because the first half of this year, you were prioritizing, of course, with the Serum Institute of India, the AstraZeneca vaccine. The second half of this year, I know you have orders in for Johnson & Johnson. Both have had concerns raised on certain subsets of the population with blood clot risk. How are you managing vaccine hesitancy in nations where you're delivering these vaccines? Well, of course, one of the important principles of vaccinations are that you always look at the risk-benefit ratio. I mean, there normally are some side effects associated with vaccines, and what we rely on then are regulatory agencies to assess those carefully when there are questions to stop vaccination, to analyze and understand, right now the recommendations for those vaccines are that they are the, the benefit ratio is way in favor of the vaccines. By the way, you get those particular clots also from COVID infections. And as you know, COVID is rampant across the world. So we are continuing to use those vaccines. We will continue to watch what WHO recommends, the European Medicines Agency, and of course the U.S., is uh, 
um, do to finish um, and have their own recommendations on this at the moment. Uh, the vaccine has not been licensed in the U.S. It highlights the importance of information campaigns as well to educate people about the risks and the relative risks between catching COVID and, and taking a vaccine. I read from um, the US-based health charity Care that for every dollar spent on vaccines, a further $5 is required to tackle things like information campaigns for the logistics of actually getting those vaccines in people's arms. Money, Dr. Berkeley, you clearly need more money. How much more do you need? Well, thanks for asking. At the investment opportunity launch, and that is the investment opportunity, of course, is on our website. We asked for a, an additional $2 billion for this calendar year, 2021. That will allow us to raise the total for the poorest countries to closer to 30% of the population, uh, allowing us to buy an additional half billion doses. Um, we're also asking for cost sharing from countries and from the multilateral development banks. So we hope to get that support to continue to make this drive. But right now, the acute need is vaccines early because we want to make sure that every healthcare worker in the world is protected. That's the right thing to do. And it's also, you know, the thing to do, even if we're only concerned about, you know, our own countries, because at the end, as I said, these viruses are moving very quickly around the world. Yeah. And a great contribution as well. Flying the flag for that. Greta Thunberg providing 100,000 euros. I mean, that's an amazing statement and contribution from her. I agree with that. And I, and I think she understands that this type of global cooperation is important when you have things that transcend borders. In a right. sense, like climate change, one can't think of, oh, my country did the right thing and that's it. You have to think about what's happening in other countries. And I think it's the same thing when you have a global pandemic is we have to take that global approach for a global problem. So very pleased to have her support us. We're in it together. Dr. Seth Berkeley, sir, thank you so much for your time and for the work you and your team are doing. Chief Executive Officer of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the co-head of the COVAX program. Great to have you with us once again. The market Thanks. opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A wary tone on Wall Street as investors reassess record gains. Concern, too, that COVID cases remain at record highs globally despite stronger vaccine rollouts. The Nasdaq, as you can see, pulling back slightly for a third straight session after two days of near 1% losses. Netflix not helping, of course, a big tech loser. It's reporting a normalization, let's call it that, of subscription growth following last year's stellar lockdown gains. Much more on Netflix shortly and from the Netflix subscription glitch to Super League football ditched. U.S. listed Manchester United shares are a little higher after yesterday's 6% drop as plans for a football Super League collapse. You just got to look at someone's computer there. How exciting. And disappointment in crypto land too. Dogecoin disciples failing to push their fledgling cryptocurrency to a $1 level during Doge Day celebrations yesterday. Dogecoin, a real dog today. Oh, dear. Down another 18% to a mere 31 cents. Now, speaking of crypto, a former U.S. banking regulator becoming the head of one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. Brian Brooks is former acting comptroller of the currency, set to become the CEO of Binance U.S. He was also chief legal officer at Coinbase. And he joins us now. Brian, fantastic to have you on the show. Congratulations, firstly, on the move. You, I think, can be credited with bringing the office of the comptroller into the 21st century in terms of what payments 
and the financial system can look like in the United States. How does that focus fit with becoming the CEO of Binance US? Well, look, you know, Julia, first of all, thanks so much for having me. And, uh, and you know, I think your comment about Dogecoin just shows we're at a place in this market where it's a $2 trillion market that needs some channeling, right? It needs some directionality. And that's what we tried to do in my last role uh, running the Office of the Controller of the Currency is to demonstrate to people that these are not cabbage patch kids. These are not collectibles. These are tokens powering fundamental financial networks. And that's why the cryptocurrency market has gone from zero to $2 trillion in only 11 years. What I hope to do at Binance is use that platform to bring those technologies to the market in a way that's safe, easy, inexpensive, and accessible to more Americans uh, and ultimately more people in the world. Uh, we're going to talk more about that. But firstly, you mentioned Dogecoin again, so now I have to. Do you include Dogecoin in that? Not a cabbage patch well, kid. You, you know, here, here's the funny thing when you have a market. So think about the stock market. There are all kinds of stocks out there for companies that are ultimately not going to be useful and are not going to succeed. And many of those companies go to bankruptcy. Now, I'm not saying Dogecoin will do that. Dogecoin seems to be a novelty item, kind of like Cabbage Patch Kids were in the 80s, as I say. But Dogecoin is not a, not a token that is powering a fundamental network the way that Ethereum is or Solana is or Filecoin is. I mean, there are things out there that really are changing the world. And the point about exchanges is to bring all of those before the market so that investors and customers can assess which ones are most useful. That's why stocks have value. And ultimately, that's why crypto tokens have value. Diplomatic. But is it about an exchange being an on-ramp for a broader understanding? Because you and I not only talked about cryptocurrencies as a, an entry point into this space and this technology, it's the underlying networks that provide, I think, what's most exciting about the potential. Yeah, I, I think you've got it exactly right, Julia. I, I think about uh, exchanges as on-ramps that ultimately won't be necessary in their current form five years from now. If, if you think about fax machines or scanners, they were a funny sort of intermediate technology where, you know, to use a document on the internet, you had to first print out a piece of paper and sign it and then get it onto the internet using your scanner. But nobody does that anymore, right? Now we have DocuSign and fully internet native tools to allow us to never leave the internet. And I think ultimately that's the way crypto finance will work as well, is at a certain point, finance will have migrated out of the analog age and into the digital age, at which point the idea of moving your fiat currency into your crypto wallet won't really have meaning anymore. At that point, we'll be fully network native, just as we are on the internet for everything else. So you saying in five years' time, Coinbase, Binance, US will be unnecessary? No, I, I guess what I'm saying is at that point, these companies will be radically transformed into platform companies that are providing right. services for the crypto economy, like Google went beyond search at one point. And that makes sense to me. I think one of the other things, and again, you and I have discussed it, and we've touched this on this a little bit on the show, is the idea of decentralized finance, this idea of cutting out the middleman in things that require some form of contract, whether it's insurance, whether it's lending. Is that another avenue that you see as potential for, for Binance US going forward? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, look, we've learned a lot in the last year about not just the costs of middlemen, but also the dangers of middlemen. So we know what the costs are, right? We all know how expensive it is to go to the bank and experience an overdraft fee or a late fee or a low balance fee in our account, right? That's the cost of them performing their middleman function. But we've also seen how dangerous it can be. You know, think about the sort of social issues of people being deplatformed from various social media accounts because some central, you know, overseer decided that their opinions were the wrong opinions or or whatever. When that comes to finance, 
which is what is very possible in a world where you have bank CEOs deciding who gets an account or which services get to be provided, that gets a little bit scary in a free society. The point of decentralization is to say, let's take that out and let's just all be free, right? Let's just all have access to our money and to all the transactions that we want to do as free people. That's a fairly fundamental um, ideology that powers a lot of crypto. And it's what decentralization is about. It's about freedom. Yeah, the, these are the things we have to be talking about, I think, when we're trying to educate people about the crypto space. It's not just about the rise and fall of, of digital tokens or, or cryptocurrencies, as we call it. Coinbase, I mentioned it again because it is a competitor. And one of the statistics that came out from that when it, when it IPO'd was that they're making 75% of the revenues of the NASDAQ on 2% of the volumes. And that's hugely alluring for people to come into this space and, and compete and fight for those margins, quite frankly, Brian. But is part of what we've just discussed here sort of an evolution of what these exchanges represent. Focusing too much on the loss of those margins is irrelevant as the products that these exchanges offer diversifies. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, at some point, as you saw with Robin Hood and Charles Schwab, you, you can't actually have a business model, certainly not a decentralized business model, that's focused on harvesting exchange fees from people, you know, for the privilege right. of spending money. That, that won't last. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of value-add services that need to be brought. And I'll just tell you about Coinbase. Coke is a better product because of Pepsi. That's kind of my thesis for Binance US. Coinbase will be a better company because it will have fierce competition from us. And that's good for everybody. Because you'll fight and innovate. Exactly. Talk to me about regulation, because this is the big question mark that remains. And I know you are one of those at the forefront of fighting for clarity for the better of the industry. How do we find a balance between addressing some of the concerns over lack of transparency, of it being misused versus suppressing innovation that puts the United States at a disadvantage relative to other countries like China, for example, that are pushing this and moving forward in leaps and bounds? Yeah, well, Julia, I, I would say a couple of quick things about that. First of all, now that we're in a $2 trillion market cap in crypto, I think the fear that regulation will somehow banish or suppress this, that, that's gone away. Where It's too late for that. Too many people are here. There's too much value uh, here. So that's the good news as we've crossed that Rubicon. The other thing I would say is during my time at the OCC, we did some things that are fairly permanent, right? We chartered crypto banks, for example, and those charters can never be taken away. So this is now embedded in the system in a, in a permanent way. Now what we need to start thinking about is what should the content of these regulations be? And you know, in the same way that we don't apply FCC broadcast licenses to YouTube, even though YouTube is a way of distributing video content all around the world, we need to start getting <laughs> idea that some of these banking regulations, they don't exist for the sake of existing. They exist because banking presents certain risks that don't exist in crypto land. You know, so there's no risk that there's a middleman committing fraud or that there's some bad credit decision being made in crypto because there's no person making a decision. We, we can put those to one side. What we need to focus on are things like money laundering and terrorism financing, which are real risks in crypto as they are elsewhere, and find blockchain native solutions to those things that allow people the benefits while suppressing the costs. We need to focus on both the benefit side and the cost side if we want to have another internet revolution like we did in the 90s. And I think that's where we'll get to. Regulate the use of technology rather than just regulating the technology itself for the sake of regulation. Right. Brian, well great to have you with you. <laughs> have my moments. Brian Brooks, incoming CEO of Binance US. Stay in touch, please. It's going to be interesting Thank to you, uh, keep track of your progress. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, a beach break with added benefits. Why the Maldives wants you to visit and get vaccinated potentially at the same time.
Welcome back to First Move. The Maldives, a chain of sun-kissed islands in the Indian Ocean and the smallest country in Asia, is promoting itself as a destination for vaccine tourism in a world first. It's called the three Vs, visit, vaccinate and vacation. Visitors will be offered vaccines once all the local population has been inoculated. The government says 90% of frontline tourism workers are already vaccinated and about half the population has received at least one dose. Visitors who've been vaccinated before travelling won't have to submit a PCR test. Tourism accounts for nearly 30% of Maldives' GDP. And what's important to note is its reliance on visitors from India too, which, as you've heard on the show already, is seeing a massive second wave of COVID cases. Minister Masoom is Minister of Tourism for the Maldives and joins us now. Minister Masoom, fantastic to have you on the show. I saw your 3V plan and was intrigued. How soon could this be up and running? Uh, thank you, Julia. Uh, the idea is to first, uh, as you just mentioned, have the Maldives uh, population vaccinated, uh, all the residents, including the experts here. That is the uh, first priority. So we are working on that. And uh, uh, if you work on the existing timeline, probably uh, latest by third quarter, you should be able to have the vaccination in the Maldives. I guess the benefit of this, and assuming you are up and running by the third quarter, is that people have to stay for a while. If we're talking Pfizer or Moderna, it's three to four weeks. Are you assuming people will be coming and staying for a while or perhaps a workation, working and vacationing at the same time? Yeah, the uh, workation has been very popular now recently. Uh, we have uh, had uh, very long uh, staying guests. And in fact, our duration of stay has uh, been longer uh, compared to previous years now. Uh, the vaccination program is actually a way that we want to appreciate the tourists. It's a, uh, a notion of uh, thank you. It is a token of appreciation we wish to give to the tourists for coming to the Maldives when the world was shut down. You know, we managed to run the tourism quite successfully in 2022 and in 2020. And this year we are doing rather well again. So now uh, with vaccination, I think we are geared to have even a better tourism. If you compare the tourism that you're seeing this year and even in 2020 relative to what you saw in 2029, how how down is it? Yeah, in, um, if, we, if we compare 2019, many markets, we are already back to the um, uh, uh, pre-2019 level. Um, India, Russia, we have surpassed uh, 2019 levels. It, other markets are also going to be that. All, all in all, we are about 35% down compared to 2019. And that is, we have, uh, uh, the, the uh, Eastern market is not coming yet. Uh, China, Japan, Korea is not coming. And uh, much of Europe at the moment is not really open. So when everybody open, uh, we are hoping to see this year, our traditional law season, May, June, July, we expect it to be much, much better than the previous years. We are almost back on track, but uh, uh, we want to keep the tempo as we move towards our golden year, that's uh, uh, 2022. A golden year. What about India? In terms of, we, are, we are going to be have 50 years for tourism. <laughs> um, talk to me about India, because there are concerns clearly with what we're seeing in terms of COVID cases in India. Are you worried about perhaps having to put some limitations on, on visitors coming from there? Because that will clearly materially damage your visitor numbers. 
the various va variants of the uh, COVID out there, we have been, uh, when with our tourism, the system is, um, uh, we have got very good protocols in place. First of thing is the whole management is uh, very much uh, top down, everybody engaged approach where head of state, President Abraham Soli is taking charge of everything. And uh, we have got the whole of government, whole of community and whole of travel industry approach uh, with uh, very strong support from health sector and other related agencies. And uh, the way the Maldives is, because of our unique geography, we are relatively safe. Julia, when we started the tourism, when we opened the borders, everybody was, everybody is closed and we have managed to run it that way. And uh, the safety protocols we have already are quite adequate. And we want to make sure that we have the tourism with the uh, maximum safety for tourists, safe, uh, staff and uh, the local community with uh, minimum inconvenience. Uh, still, um, they will need a uh, uh, negative PCR if they come without vaccination and after, um, without vaccination, if, if, if they come with vaccination and if they have finished the uh, required duration of 14 days, then that, that is pretty much. Uh, I think uh, we, we will be managing this well. Of course, we, we are uh, vigilant. We keep our monitoring uh, in place and we make sure that we move on. This is the new way we have to live and we have to make sure that tourism continues. Yeah, finding some kind of balance and a return to some degree of normality is essential. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Minister. Can you give me any sense of cost? What's the additional cost going to be of a holiday to the Maldives of coming and getting a vaccine? As, as I mentioned earlier, this is a token of appreciation for the tourists who managed so to it's come free. to Maldives. Um, uh, it will not be, uh, the main idea is not the business out of it. The main idea is to give an opportunity, especially for the pensioners who have missed travel in last couple of months because they are most vulnerable group. So uh, we right. want to make sure that pensioners especially get this chance. Um, it is more of a, a really a appreciation gesture rather than a, a business. But of course, we want to have uh, our tourism going. Uh, we need uh, tourism because uh, tourism is our economy. Of course. And I have to say, anyone watching those beautiful pictures while we've been talking, I'm sure, is completely sold. It looks amazing. Minister Masoom, we wish you the best of luck, the Minister of Tourism for the Maldives there. Thank you, sir, for your time. And as a programming note, Richard Quest visits the Maldives. Yes, we hate him. In this weekend's Quest World of Wonder, catch it dayside in Europe at 10 a.m. in London, 11 a.m. in Berlin. We don't really hate him, but what a great job. Right, up next. Does the lifting of lockdowns mean the end of Netflix streaming binge? We'll take a look at the latest numbers. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Subscriber growth slowdown. Netflix shares are lower this morning after the company missed targets for subscriber growth. Just a comparison, though, the stock's still up over 20% compared to a year ago. Frank Pelota joins us now. Frank, the financials on this were actually really good. I've been poring over them. It was just there were great expectations over subscriber numbers and uh, they couldn't achieve it. Yeah, that's the thing with Netflix. Nobody cares about the money. They only <laughs> care about the subscribers. It's true. Like, you know, there were so many great numbers in Netflix's earnings last night. And one of the biggest numbers I thought they kind of got overlooked was they plan on spending $17 billion on content this year, but they missed their subscriber right. count 
and their forecast was really weak and pretty lackluster. So today the stock is down 8%. That's how Netflix rolls because they don't have a lot of other revenue streams. When you think about Disney, they have the parks, they have Baby Yoda plush dolls, Comcast has NBC, Apple has Apple products, and Amazon has AWS. Netflix is their subscriber growth. If that's not growing, then Netflix is seemingly not growing, and then the stock takes a huge hit. Is it a saturation problem? Because you and I have talked about this before. I mean, $17 billion on content. They are a monster in this market. And if I look at the churn numbers, it's not so bad. It's not like people are signing up and then disappearing. What's the deal here? It depends on where you're talking about saturation. Are you talking uh-huh. about U.S. and Canada? Because probably, yeah, they might have hit a wall there. So, But the world is big, and Netflix is always talking about how much of their company is global. And so if they can break into other places around the world that aren't as saturated as, say, the U.S. and Canada is right now, then there's still growth there. But that's the question. And that's why people are really curious about what the future of Netflix looks like, because It's one thing to break into the U.S. and Canada and well-established countries, but that might not be the case everywhere. The world is big, so, Frank. It sounds like the uh, movie title. Frank Pelota, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.